Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 36, An Oily Character, in which we talk about petroleum, the basis along with steel for the industrial age. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Now that we're pretty firmly ensconced in the 20th century, I thought it would be appropriate to bring up that natural substance that lubricates society, by which I mean petroleum. Petroleum is a natural substance in that it seeps right out of the ground sometimes spontaneously. It comes from remains of ancient life, such as plankton, algae, and similar, which were covered with water containing no dissolved oxygen or sediments, and were fossilized without bacterial decomposition. Subterranean heat and pressure caused the organic remains to react, forming hydrocarbons over millions of years. Petroleum forms in what geologists call the oil window, a range of temperatures that facilitate these reactions. If the temperature is too high, the large carbon chains present decompose into natural gas, which are small molecules. There is a hypothesis that petroleum formed from non-living sources, but most geologists reject that idea. Ancient peoples knew of petroleum. The Greek historian Herodotus told how asphalt was used in the Babylonian Empire and that it was easy to find along one of the tributaries to the river Euphrates. The Chinese are known to have burned petroleum as fuel up to 2,400 years ago. Oil wells are first recorded also in China in 347 CE, dug up to 240 meters deep using bamboo poles with bits on the ends. The recovered oil was used to evaporate concentrated salt water to get salt. The medieval period was also an active one for petroleum. Baghdad paved its streets with tar. Oil fields were exploited in Azerbaijan by the 9th century, and Marco Polo, the Italian explorer, mentioned them in the 13th century. Distillation of petroleum was well known to the philosophers and alchemists of that period, and kerosene was used for lamps. The word petroleum itself is from the Middle Ages, coming from a combination of Greek petra, rock, plus Latin oleum, oil. A Greekala, whom we met in an early episode, used the word in one of his treatises. But let's move on to the modern era, starting in the 19th century. In Derbyshire in England, the Scottish chemist James Young found a petroleum source seeping out from the Riddings coal mine in 1847. He distilled the petroleum oil into a lightweight oil good for lamps, plus a more viscous oil good for lubrication. After seeing some dripping oil in the mine, he got the idea that maybe the oil was exuded from the coal seam because of heat, and maybe he could do the same in a factory. Eventually he was successful and got a variety of products out of petroleum, 
including a material he termed paraffin oil because it was similar to wax. He patented all this in 1850. At the same time, a Canadian geologist, Abraham Gessner, figured out how to refine coal and oil bearing shale into a light liquid he called kerosene. Or maybe because the Arabs were doing this centuries earlier, he rediscovered kerosene. Kerosene's advantage is that it burned cleanly. And was cheaper than whale oil, the prominent lamp and lubricating oil of the day. He grew his business in a few years into the North American Kerosene Gaslight Company, and quickly was at capacity because the raw materials weren't so easy to get. Also at this time, an American businessman, Samuel Keir, owned some salt wells and a canal boat company. That shipped coal across Pennsylvania. His salt wells were getting contaminated with this petroleum gunk, and having a canal boat firm, he just dumped the petroleum into the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal, a canal that went westward from Philadelphia, until one of his oil slicks ignited right on the canal. With a chemist, he developed some distillates of the petroleum. That he packaged into patent medicines, first called rock oil, and later Seneca oil, for fifty cents a bottle. His brochure said, "Kier's petroleum or rock oil, celebrated for its wonderful curative powers, a natural remedy procured from a well in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, four hundred feet below the Earth's surface, put up and sold by Samuel M. Kier." Three hundred sixty-three Liberty Street, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The healthful balm from nature's secret spring, the bloom of health and life to man will bring. As from her depths this magic liquid flows to calm our sufferings and assuage our woes. He claimed it healed chest, windpipe, lungs. It cured diarrhea, cholera, piles, rheumatism, gout, asthma, bronchitis, scrofula, burns, scalds, neuralgia, ringworm, pimples, deafness, and more. It was truly amazing, as he would have told you himself. Then Kier synthesized from the petroleum some petroleum jelly and sold that. Unfortunately, neither product made Kier much money. He did work out a way to distill kerosene and sell that to miners, which he called carbon oil, along with a special lamp in which to burn his kerosene. That began pulling in the big bucks for Kier, and so Kier built the first oil refinery in the USA in 1853 in Pittsburgh. And then, in the late 1850s, came the modern oil well, usually considered to be Edwin Drake's well. Near Titusville in western Pennsylvania, though there was a well drilled in Oil Springs, Ontario, the previous year. He drilled down 21 meters with a yield of four cubic meters per day, or 25 barrels, if you like. Drake's first oil was shipped to Kier's refinery. You can visit the Drake Well Museum and Park to this day. The oil boom began, and there were discoveries in Ohio. Texas, California, and Oklahoma in North America, and a variety of places around the world. Petroleum is not a single compound; 
It is a soupy mixture of all kinds of chemicals, primarily hydrocarbons, each of which has a variety of uses commercially. In order for chemical engineers to separate out the different compounds, a refinery uses a distillation unit, which includes a variety of sections. First, the petroleum travels through a desalter unit to remove salts in the oil. Most of these salts tend to be rock salt, calcium chloride, and magnesium chloride. You heat the petroleum to over 100 degrees Celsius and add a small amount of water. The salt dissolves in the water and is removed. The heart of the unit, though, is the distillation tower. In the distillation tower, a process called fractional distillation occurs. Fractional distillation takes hot petroleum and pipes it into the tower toward, but not at, the bottom. From bottom to top of the tower or column, there are segments or chambers with perforations. Allowing the petroleum products to rise to the appropriate segment, each segment is maintained at a different temperature, where the appropriate fraction of the petroleum, all hydrocarbons or carbon chains with hydrogen atoms dangling off, condenses. At the very bottom, the segment held at 600 degrees Celsius is where heavy fuel oil condenses. Fuel oil has molecules ranging from 20 carbons all the way up to 70 carbons. Even heavier molecules, those with more than seventy carbons, fall to the very bottom and are piped away for use as asphalt. Higher up in the tower, at four hundred degrees Celsius, the lubricating oils condense. These molecules have twenty to fifty carbons. A bit higher, at two hundred seventy degrees Celsius, the diesel fuels with fourteen to twenty carbons condense. Even higher is kerosene. A mixture of compounds with 10 to 16 carbon atoms. Most of the way to the top is where gasoline or petrol in the UK condenses. Most of these molecules have 5 to 10 carbons, with the ideal gasoline molecule having 8 carbons, called octane. Almost at the top of the distillation tower is where naphtha, a very lightweight liquid, condenses at 70 degrees Celsius. And right at the top, the remaining hydrocarbon fuel gases are piped out at around 20 degrees Celsius near room temperature. These gases have one carbon, methane, two carbons, ethane, three carbons, propane, and four carbons, butane. All of the products piped out of the tower then have to be purified. Often, there is significant amounts of sulfur and sulfuric acid. Which needs to be removed from the hydrocarbons as well. A general guide to how much of each product is extracted from petroleum is that, per barrel of crude oil or 159 liters, around 74 liters of gasoline, 45 liters of diesel, and 13 liters of jet fuel. Burning gasoline in a typical internal combustion engine means some air and fuel is in the cylinder, is compressed, and ignited by the spark plug. Sometimes some unburnt fuel can be overcompressed and ignites before the spark plug's flame reaches the fuel. This causes a ping or knock in the engine and can damage the engine. 
I mentioned octane as the ideal component of gasoline. As I mentioned, octane has eight carbons connected together and eighteen hydrogen atoms hanging off the carbons. The carbons in octane can be connected in different ways, such as in a line or with branches. It turns out that there are eighteen different ways to link the eight carbons together. An octane rating is a scale of gasoline's capability to avoid knocking in a variety of engines with different ratios of compression. It turns out that an excellent molecule to resist knocking is isooctane, whose official name is 2,2,4-trimethylpentane, and it has lots of branched carbons. Isooctane was assigned to an anti-knock rating of 100. Linear heptane, with only seven carbons in a line and sixteen hydrogens, has an anti-knock rating of zero. Not all octanes are the same. A linear octane has a rating of minus twenty. Gasoline manufacturers mix a variety of isomers of octane plus other hydrocarbons to give a particular octane rating. You can even find octane numbers greater than one hundred. If the company mixed in small molecules such as ethanol or methanol, decades ago tetraethyl lead was found to be an excellent anti-knock compound, but spewing lead out of your engine through a tailpipe has its own problems, as we shall see when we talk of environmental chemistry. As to the name gasoline, it's a marker separating North American English from other dialects. It's a North American word first used around 1864. It may have been influenced by the trademark "casoline" with a C from 1862 in Britain, used as a lamp oil. Outside North America, it's usually called petrol, a name from a mineral oil sold by a British business in 1870. Later on, the mineral oil was repurposed into engine fuel, and the trademark had lapsed. And simultaneously, the French word "pétrole" was already in use. Legalese in Britain uses the phrase "motor spirit." I hear that in Nigeria, the general term is still often "premium motor spirit." I will say that "gasolina" is common in Spanish and Portuguese, and words derived from benzene are used in other languages, such as German. In some South American countries, gasoline is called naphtha, related to the hydrocarbon mixture naphtha. Ideally, burning hydrocarbons is a well-known chemical process. The reaction is hydrocarbon plus enough oxygen from the air results in carbon dioxide plus water and a lot of heat. The hot carbon dioxide gas and hot water vapor can leave the engine easily through the tailpipe. Thermodynamics shows that you have to break the carbon-carbon, carbon-hydrogen, and oxygen-oxygen bonds, which require a certain amount of energy. Then you form carbon-oxygen bonds in carbon dioxide, and hydrogen-oxygen bonds in water. The amount of heat released is obviously enough to do mechanical work driving a vehicle. But engines aren't ideal, nor are fuels. Fuels often contain small amounts of contaminants, particularly sulfur, which also burns in oxygen. So sulfur dioxide, an acid-forming gas, is often emitted in engine exhausts. 
The air is mostly nitrogen, not oxygen, and so a small amount of nitrogen gas can burn in oxygen to form smog-causing nitrogen oxides. Even burning carbon atoms in fuel doesn't go completely to carbon dioxide. Sometimes you get other carbon compounds, such as benzene, which is toxic, and carbon monoxide if there is less oxygen available for burning. Carbon monoxide is deadly in high enough concentrations, so this is why internal combustion engines need pollution control systems. Natural gas is a mixture of small molecule hydrocarbons, mostly methane (CH4) and ethane (C2H6). It either exists as dissolved in petroleum or even as a gas bubble capping the underground oil source. The odor you smell from natural gas is from a smelly additive acting as a safety feature, so you know there is a leak in your home. The additive is called mercaptan. Which is CH4S, or also CH3SH. It's relatively harmless if you detect a slight odor. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. As for burning any hydrocarbons and organic compounds in general. All of which automatically form carbon dioxide. That's another problem which we will address in the environmental chemistry episodes in the future. Another function of hydrocarbons is lubrication. A lubricant physically separates two nearby parts so they don't wear against each other. If you separate your rubbing parts, then there is less friction, less heat, fewer vibrations, and less noise. Noise is physically wasted energy that you could harness instead to do work. A lubricant can also transfer heat away from a hot area to a cooler area, where the heat can be radiated off the engine. Circulating lubricants can also remove any debris or contaminants in the engine. Hydrocarbons are nonpolar and so do not mix with polar liquids such as water. Therefore, they reject water from the engine and help prevent corrosion and rust. An oil also can seal areas to prevent leakage of gases. Typical oil lubricants have 15 to 20 carbons in a chain, while typical greases have 20 to 25 carbons. To talk more about the physical properties of petroleum hydrocarbons, I've asked Elliot Greenfield, senior engineer at Greenfield Manufacturing in Philadelphia, to be a guest for this episode. Steve has talked about the chemistry of oil. I want to talk about the physical properties of oil. Oil coats, creates films, cleans, holds pressure, transfers motion, slips or does not slip. Displaces water, eliminates the decomposition of metal, or flows or does not flow. 
it all depends on how you mix it up. Like an ancient alchemist, modern chemists mix and blend in all sorts of stuff into oil to make it bend, no better, flow to our will. The story may go back to early people who first invented the wheel. I wish I had that patent. And stopped dragging everything around. The wheel and the axle to which it was attached, they discovered, had a problem. The joint where they met would always wear out or get rubbed away. To fix it, prehistoric people probably found that animal fat would reduce the rubbing and make the connection last longer and work better. The first lubricant was born. Later, an oil was discovered. They tried that, but it probably leaked out. So they started mixing it with things to thicken it up, like soap or clay, and the first grease appeared. Later, we added all sorts of things to make grease better. Molybdenum bisulfide, a round molecule, graphite, a slippery flake, PTFE, a high-temperature plastic, and even paraffin, a longer-chain hydrocarbon, are among just some of the additives mixed with oils to form these semi-liquid compounds we call greases. The grease fills the microscopic spaces on the surface, creating a film which reduces the friction and thus the fretting of the metal. Fretting occurs when metals are rubbed together and heating occurs and the surface molecules oxidize and wear away. Later, we learn to contain the oil by sealing it into rotating surfaces. To keep the oil in place, we added seals and we created bearings known as mixed films bearings where the metals rub against one another but the lubricant reduces the fretting and wear to a minimum. We found that using dissimilar metals helped. So we would combine steel and bronze or steel and lead into an alloy called Babbitt metal. This combined with oils would greatly reduce the wear. Also, by using bronze as a sleeve, we could more easily repair the bearing by just replacing the bronze sleeve. But these bearings would still wear. By changing the flow rate of the oil using longer chain hydrocarbons and adding additives, we could alter the rate of flow or viscosity of the oil. Now we could build film pressure on the oil so that the two surfaces did not even touch, thus creating the full film bearing, a great innovation. Pressurizing the oil and keeping the length of the bearing long enough to compare it to its diameter, we could force the rotating shaft to maintain a film with enough pressure so that the supported load would not overcome the film pressure generated and the full film or fluid bearing was now possible. Every car engine depends on this. The oils in cars have additives to enable the oils to maintain their viscosity through a wide range of temperatures so they can maintain the full film required. High-speed manufacturing uses the same principles. But we have ball bearings which roll and don't slide. Yet they do fret and heat. Here oil keeps out or flushes contaminants away and can cool the surfaces. A great example of oil's versatility was the development of the automatic car transmission. Here chemists had many challenges. The oil used in transmissions cannot slip too much as transmissions change gears by clamping down on gear rings with friction brands. Automatic transmissions use planetary gear arrangement. They have a center gear with a ring gear which has teeth on the inside, then three planetary gears which travel in between. When the ring gear is locked, the center or sun gear forces the planet gears to revolve. Locking the ring gears is accomplished by a friction band around it held tight by a hydraulic piston. This band requires that the transmission fluid allow enough friction for these bands to lock the rings. 
There are different sets of rings and planets for each gear speed. The friction aspect of the fluid is very important. Too much slip and the bands don't lock and the transmission fails. The same fluid also has to push the fan blades of the torque converter to enable the motor to spin up the transmission and couple the engine to the wheels. Much of this is done hydraulically with pistons, now driven by computer-controlled valves, so blending the oil or transmission fluid is tricky. Now, that's not to say that all oil is actually oil. Many oils referred to as oil are actually blends of other things. Polyolefins or glycols are often substituted for oils and are listed as synthetic oils. Of course, they are not oils or hydrocarbon chains as we are now familiar with. Adding them or blending them for those unfamiliar with their chemistry can result in equipment failure. The moral of this story is that there are oils for sliding and oils for not sliding. There are oils that are thick and oils that are thin. There are oils that thicken with temperature and oils which do not. Oils and greases thus are complicated mechanical process that is very tricky chemical mix. My last word on this is that modern lubricating oils and fluids are a very complex blend of chemical components, each designed for a specific application. It is important, therefore, not to mix them up. Thanks. In our next episode, we look at laboratories, the workplace where chemistry gets done, and how they evolved up to the early 20th century. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.